me just welcome everyone to Light Shed Live. We are really excited today. I think there's probably, you know, if you think about pop culture and the internet, there's probably no bigger sensation than the D'Amelios. I think everyone, if you haven't seen a Charlie D'Amelio video or Dixie D'Amelio video, you're probably not internet connected or certainly not mobile internet connected. So on behalf of Walt Pysik and Brandon Ross, we're really excited to have um, Greg join us to talk about you know, sort of the world of the D'Amelio families and why he left his job at United Talent Agency, which is good friends of Lightshed for many, many years. Uh, but maybe as a way to just start, um, you know, Greg, just go back and let's rewind a little bit. Uh, you signed the D'Amelios as an agent when you were at UTA. Maybe just walk us through, like, how did that happen? I mean, obviously, you know, she was blowing up, but walk us through, like, how you actually figured out that you wanted to sign a TikTok star to as a talent agent. So, yeah, uh, thanks for having me, all you guys. Pleasure to be here. Um, so, the you know, I would say Q4, like 2019, maybe like October, November, uh, TikTok was getting a lot of buzz, ton, ton of conversation. And we had seen other platforms pop up and people become famous on those platforms and there kind of be a rush by the talent agents to go sign them. And without a lot of strategy, without a lot of knowledge of what would happen to those, that, those talents. And so we were like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to run out and sign 50 TikTokers. And, and we were pretty disciplined about it. And I went home for, um, or I left, you know, the office for Christmas break. And it was kind of that December month that my 10 year old and all his friends became so obsessed with TikTok. More people got phones and it was just a really crazy moment. And so um, I just heard the buzz and the conversation around TikTok and obviously Charlie's name kept getting mentioned. I come back to work at UTA around January 6th, 2020. It's like my first day back. And when you're an agent, you take off about two and a half, three weeks and everything is shut down. So I come back and I have a full week of lunches, dinners, meetings. I have 35 other clients in Sanity. And my first day back, within a couple hours, I get a call out of the blue by someone. They're like, hey, I just signed the D'Amelios as a manager. Uh, do you want to meet with them? And I'm like, sure, that sounds interesting. I've heard their name and they are the ones that I would love to meet with. And he's like, cool, you can meet with them Wednesday at 4 p.m. in Manhattan. And I'm sitting in my office in Beverly Hills. So I was like, you know what? It was truly one of those moments in my life where I was like, take a flyer. So jumped on a red eye Tuesday night, flew to New York, met with the D'Amelios and luckily enough signed them uh, the next day. So it was a little bit of, you know, patience and knowledge, a lot of luck and serendipity. Um, and then they became my clients, you know, right away in early January. We probably have a lot of investors who may not totally understand the difference between manager and agent, especially in 2021. How blurry are those lines? And maybe just delineate sort of where how you see those two separate functions evolving. Sure. My, my simple answer is, if you ever watched Entourage, uh, the agent is Ari and the manager is E. So the agent is... <laughs> Agent is primarily responsible for the deals, right? So it's sourcing the deals, it's negotiating the deals, it's keeping the relationships going with the buyers, as we call them, whether those buyers are the movie studios or the advertising agencies, the people spending the money. Um, and the manager, as I always describe it, is in charge of the execution of the, of the client's life, right? So the execution of, you know, getting the deals done, the execution of their day-to-day -day life, you know, moving into a new house or deciding to hire an assistant or deciding to hire a lawyer or a publicist, they're more execution-based day-to-day. Um, a manager should have very few clients um, where an agent can have, you know, dozens or hundreds. 
I wanted to dig deeper on what it takes to stand out on TikTok and why certain creators like the D'Amelios have had such kind of success in the platform. I, I actually was reading an article to, pre to prepare for um, this Light Shed Live in the New Yorker. And there was a quote that stuck out to me and wanted to get your reaction to it. it said, unlike influencer culture, which often conveys unattainable standards of beauty and wealth, TikTok culture reveals, I'm sorry, reveres ordinariness. I think that's true. Listen, I, I think that there's the whole macro thing of like, what is an influencer, right? And what is a digital creator and all that? So th that's probably a conversation in and of itself is what does it take to do that? Right. And, um, and, what, is, and what are the differences between platforms? And then so specifically platform. TikTok, yeah. Totally. So, so on that one, that micro component, um, that is true. I, listen, I think that we lived in a world of, you know, people making YouTube videos, which is really hard to do. YouTube's its own beast where I, YouTube's way much more like television. You know, 99.99% of people consume TV, 0.001% of people make TV. That's what's happened to YouTube. Um, Instagram is more that blurry world where a lot of people make Instagram content and consume Instagram content. Uh, TikTok is honestly somewhere in between. I think massive amounts of people have TikToks, don't even have user accounts, don't, never made a TikTok in their life. There's very few people on Instagrams without a single post, right? So when you put us into that TikTok world, what does it take? And, and I think interestingly, the answer is it's somewhere in between Instagram and YouTube. So the, the authenticity factor that, that was made YouTube its core, where people would turn on their cameras and vlog and talk about their lives and tell their stories, that's way more a YouTube thing. The frequency of how often you post on Instagram, multiple posts, multiple stories, that's a TikTok thing. So from a content standpoint, I think you got to be good at that about how, knowing how to do both. And then I think you're right. I listen, I think that on TikTok, you know, kids were posting pictures in the room with, you know, zit cream on and their hair looking crazy and, you know, in a hoodie and a sweatshirt, you would never do that on Instagram. So I think that realness, authenticity. You might, you might do it on Instagram stories, right? And you might do it on Instagram. Obviously, these platforms do evolve and, and change. And by the way, they borrow from each other, obviously. So, so that's a thing, but I'll, I'll give my answer on Charlie, which is my uh, my become my cliche answer, but I do believe it to be true. And it, and obviously, I quit my job to work for the family, so I believe this. But what I funny enough to say about them and Charlie and TikTok is, you know, a guy named James Naismith invented this game called basketball, and it's you know a rectangle you know court and a ten feet tall basket and dribbling and shooting. And there is a person named Michael Jordan who, in my mind, has all the skill sets to play that game the best: the speed, the height, the jumping, the hand-eye coordination. Somebody invented this platform called TikTok and the tool sets that you need for TikTok, Charlie D'Amelio is the best in the entire world. She is a trained dancer. She's been trained to dance since she was four years old. She is an elite level dancer, right? If Charlie went and wasn't doing this, she'd be a backup dancer for, you know, Jennifer Lopez. She can nail choreography. She can learn it in two seconds. Early days of TikTok, you had to do that because a trend would come up and you'd learn a fairly complicated dance. She could do it in five minutes where other kids was taking them three days so quickly she could do the dance. She's the best at doing the moves. And then people would just, you know, love the dance and they'd try to do it. Her facial expressions, she was again, trained as a dancer. So the lip syncing, the eye movements, the face, it just came naturally to her. It's, it's how she, you know, emotes and projects when she performs. And then her style is super cool. It's, it wasn't overly, you know, sexy or inappropriate or whatever. She was a 15 year old, but it's really fun. If Charlie went to a store right now and said, there's a whole rack of clothes and said, pick out an outfit it's gonna be the coolest one. She has unbelievable sense of style. 
She loves doing makeup. She loves doing nails. Uh, she's so kind. She's so thoughtful. So if I was going to make a list of like, what are the 10 traits to be the best, you know, basketball player, Michael Jordan has them, the 10 traits to be the best TikToker, Charlie D'Amelio has them. So I just want to go back to at least part of that. Um, we were saying that not many people on TikTok create, they, they certainly have a lot of the same tools that you would have on some of the other social media programs, but it feels like the consumption is not basically based on who you follow. I mean, I, I don't ever go past the, the for you page. So do you think that's the primary driver that almost creates a bit of a barrier <clears throat> to I guess in your, the way you should look at it is competition, right? People might not want to try and become the next um, Charlie in, in some respects, because you know, they're not even doing it for their followers. You're, you're, you're hoping that it's the, the algo is going to randomly pick you and then, and then, you know, put you in front of, of, uh, you know, thousands of millions of people. I think the conventional wisdom right now is the opposite. I think that, you know, the, the fact that you can have zero followers and zero anything and make one single video. And for whatever reason, that video gets picked up by the for you page and all of a sudden has a million views. And yep. then from there you now have 10,000 followers and then you, those 10,000 followers help get more traction. So I think that the part of the secret sauce of TikTok is the fact that it isn't this grind of building followers, building followers, take yeah. you a year, take you three years. Um, there's this luck component to it. Um, so you can look at it either way, you which makes it, it great. But I'm just saying that that might, that might be the reason that a lot of people are there as consumers, as opposed to like what you said in Instagram, where you're, everyone's going to have at least one, one post. I think, I think the reason is it's, it's, it's just a slightly harder piece of content to make than Instagram. It's super easy to take a photo and put a filter on it and look like you're doing something cool. And a photo is right. so easy. It's super easy to do an IG story, whatever. It's hard to make a TikTok. You got to go pick, pick a sound. You're, you're judged on your creativity, whether it's funny, whether you're a good dancer. So that's why I really like, and it's really hard to make a YouTube video, an eight minute editing video with yeah. sound effects, whatever. So that's why I find that more for the concept of creativity, it's in between those two platforms. Got it. And there's probably some feeling of, for many of these people, perhaps luck in terms of you can't really put your finger on the scale too much where maybe with Instagram, there's maybe things that you can do to, to put your finger oh. You can yeah. buy followers, you can do collabs, you can do all sorts of shit on Instagram. Uh, TikTok, fairly pure. So I also wanted to go back to your comments about, I mean, I think you um, worded it pretty clearly about um, what Charlie meant as a, an asset on this platform. But, you know, Rich maybe knows more about this than I do, but what are the dynamics of leaving an entire agency <laughs> to go work for the D'Amelio family? Can you just kind of talk us through that thought process? Because that'd be fascinating to me at least. Yeah, so the main the main component is honestly my background. So most, I'd say, again, the vast majority of people at talent agencies, they they graduate college, their dream was to work in agency, they got a job in the mailroom, they grinded it out for a year and a half, got their assistant job, grinded that out for two or three years, coordinator job, another two years, junior agent, another few years, until they, like, they're literally from 22 until they're 30 years old, until they sign their first clients. Then they start building their career from that, you know, 30 to 35 range and beyond. And they're so mentally and emotionally kind of married to this concept of becoming an agent doing that. I didn't do that. So I went to law school. I worked at a law firm within a month. I quit my job as a lawyer. And I started this project called Lonely Girl 15. It's a YouTube thing back in 2016. And then- o o that, OG original content. Yeah, early days of, of YouTube and all that. And so, and one, I'll tie this off with a funny comeback, come which is, so then I did that. With, with a couple of friends of mine, built a company. So we were you know entrepreneurs, raised a bunch of money. 
we built the company up to a, you know, hundred employees, a pretty big online media company, and then sold it in 2013 to a company called Everyday Health. Did that, spent a year and a half with them. And then I got hired by UTA to go build out, you know, more of a digital talent presence. Um, and then, you know, built out the digital talent department over about seven years. So, so you're saying that's a very atypical life um, of an agent, right? <laughs> in the agency that, that did that. And therefore it was easy for me to quit. Um, I'm a yep. little entrepreneurial. I'm certainly a big risk taker. And for whatever reason, it seems like my career path has always been this like six, seven, eight years, I get bored and I look for the next thing. And so it was amazing timing. So my, my level, and then my funny thing with Rich on the Lonely Girl 15 thing is, so Lonely Girl 15 was this fictional 16 year old girl on YouTube that me and my buddies created with an actress and a storyline. And I laugh, which is now full circle. I got the most famous 16 year old girl on the internet. <laughs> so, Who's I not fictional. <laughs> genuinely believe like I am one of the uniquely qualified people in the world to understand Charlie and the family and, you know, the pressures, the, the requirement of what to do, how to do it. And then the opportunities. Um, so so getting back to that, so I was in a headspace where I was like, hmm, I really like being an agent. UT is an amazing company. I love my colleagues, I love my clients, but it became a little you know, rudimentary of like waking up each day. I kind of felt like I was on a treadmill of like another deal, another client, another this. I like building something. And so when the D'Amelios came into my life, both of the opportunities were unbelievable for them. And that, that's another cool component, which is from 2000, you know, whatever, six really, I've been in the digital content space 2013, I've been in the influencer space. And I was always waiting for that moment of when is the kind of revenue going to match the attention of these people, right? It was always like, oh, you're, you got a huge audience, but we're going to pay you this little small amount. The D'Amelios were the breakthrough where they were getting treated like just giant mainstream celebrities when it came to opportunities. So that was really cool. This kind of giant up and to the right momentum with the family and what they were doing. Me being a little looking for the next thing and wanting to build something and be part of something they needed a lot of help. They needed a lot of help kind of organizing the structure of what they wanted to build. They needed a lot of help mentally balancing, being parents, being kids, being normal people, getting a lot of attention, getting a lot of negativity. And it was just perfect timing where I so was- So what ready. does that mean for, for E, the manager, when you left the agency? I mean, have you, have you basically had some impact on the manager? Like what, what types of stuff are you doing for the family now that you wouldn't have not normally done before? And does that kind of- pinch on yeah. E and has E gotten his, his second or third client as, as I think he did on, uh, on the show? Um, yes, I'd say the, 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 initial, the initial team that they had with them um, were terrific people, friends of mine, people that helped bring, bring me on board. They, had a, they, they were building their company, had a bunch of other clients. So they, you know, they are still our partners and help us, but I've, I've stepped in the role to kind of run all components across the board of everything, everything that we do. I'm, I'm in charge and like my job is like three parts, which is one, you know, uh, executive, like an, a media company executive, we have, you know, nine people on staff, we have people that help on the content team on the music side on the licensing and design side. Um, so it's making sure we operate excellently on everything that we sign up to do. Um, there's part manager, which is, you know, deciding, are we going to say yes to this? No to this? How are we going to handle this? How are we going to handle that? And then, you know, one part psychologist, which is, you know, people are saying a lot of mean shit about you today, but they're talking about you and we didn't do anything wrong and ignore the haters, that kind of stuff. Yep. Is it like the psychologist in billions? Okay. I, I was going to say, it reminds <laughs> me of just being a sell side research analyst. It's, I, I always say it's being I a psychologist a to the no stars. To Rich, I think they get it a lot worse than, than Rich did. On, uh, uh, no, but, but hold I've on. I've seen but, some but, of the nasty things. It's really sad that they do that to kids, but I mean. Um, but, but Greg, let's just big picture. 
what are you there to build? Like, how, you know, as you kind of like think about the vision, you know, obviously we've already gotten a little bit of a flavor of it with, you know, things like a Hulu deal that I assume were, you know, led by, uh, by you. But like, as you think about sort of like the vision, get, before we get into sort of all the platforms and all that type of stuff, like what's the vision for the family that you, that you have? Um, so again, my mind thinks of it like a pie chart. So, you know, a, a big piece of that pie chart is our own content. So our own media company, I want to have, you know, have a huge presence on all the platforms. We have a huge YouTube presence, a huge Instagram presence, huge TikTok. Um, so things that we can control and shoot and, and post. And we live in this amazing world where you can monetize, um, all those things. Now I want to have a, you know, a big kind of, you know, uh, we have a huge endorsement side of the business. So work with brands that we love, top tier, super premium brands that, you know, we become partners with, they help us, we help them, et cetera. Uh, there's a part of what I call like third party media, which is television shows, podcasts, books, things that we work with other media partners to go make. Um, and then the final part is the kind of ventures licensing type component, which is, you know, we have a number of fantastic licensing deals where we lend our name to existing companies, where, you know, something by Charlie or something by Dixie and then launch our own brands and our own companies um, in spaces that make a ton of sense for us and then do cool investments, um, you know, all in Ashton Kutcher or whatnot. And then looking at each of those, so that's like the first two years, which is be great, be great in content, great in brands, great in, you know, ventures, et cetera. And then at some point in time, there's probably a world where our infrastructure can be helpful for other people. So if we're cranking it on content and we have, you know, studio space, and we have amazing creative people and editors and whatnot, the next big TikToker, the next big person on the platform, we can help them make their video and, and support them. So those, that's kind of the way I look at it. And, 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 and in the Hulu, when, when we see a Hulu show, is E going to be in the show too? So I am mic'd up and under lights and sitting in the confessional chair, which is definitely not something. The, the first day when I- Okay, quit, so you are a movie star now. I mean, hey. we, we literally say that Greg is a movie star now. You're like living, you're living it. It's strange. When I, when I quit my, when I quit UTA and I knew the reality show was coming, I went to the family and I was like, just FYI, I'm not going to be in the show. And they don't know. They're like, sure, we don't care. Do whatever you want. And then once we were like a week before pre-production, the, the showrunner came in and was like, so here's your role. And I was like, no, no, I'm not going to be in it. And she's like, how can you not be in it? You're with these people 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Like you're in it. So I am in it. Should be fun and interesting. I wanted to dig into monetization a little bit. And first of all, do you even look at TikTok and the other social platforms as places for meaningful monetization for you? Or is it kind of all about what you can do with brands and upstreaming onto other forms of media, like the, the television show? Yeah, the, the core of our monetization is the online platforms. Um, the money that you can make off of YouTube, the money that you can make off of TikTok, the you know, and it's a combination. So YouTube, IGTV, a little bit of Snap, um, TikTok have these, you know, they're fun. They have either creator funds or AdSense or whatever. And, you know, the numbers are all online. You can go look at what average CPMs are and, and what views are. And then you can back into look, you can look at any creator and see what they do. It's substantial amounts of revenue. And more importantly, it's the only thing that we control. And so we don't have to ask somebody's permission. We don't have to close a contract. We don't have to do anything. We could just make it. So my thing is like, that is the, the bedrock of our entire ecosystem is our properties and our online content. Then you layer on top of that the next level, which is the, the brand deals and endorsement deals, but those only come with massive numbers and massive views and engagement on social um, and on YouTube. So those things are one and the same. Um, the, the TV shows, the books, the podcasts, um, 
those are fun enough, actually a little more brand building. Um, the money is okay. The money is pretty good, but it just gets us a new audience. It, it you know, de-risks us a little bit and, you know, some of the things that we're doing. Um, and then the final really home runs are, you know, the Kylie Cosmetics or the, uh, you know, Fenty by Rihanna. Um, when, you, when you are fortunate enough like them to be able to do those, those could be the, you know, multi-generational wealth kind of game-changing things. When I asked the question, you mentioned YouTube first. Does YouTube monetize the best on platform? By far. And, and what, yeah, I was going to ask you what the magnitude is. And then who's right under it? Or is it just YouTube's in its own category and that's it? YouTube's so, so, so far above everyone um, for two reasons. I'd say one is time. They've just had the platform for so many years, such a great sales team, such a great product team. But more importantly, you know, a, a magazine print ad costs way less to run than a tele, primetime television ad. Audiovisual content, commercials, you know, 15 second, 30 second, interspliced into something you're watching is such a higher value CPM um, than, than a billboard on a street or a magazine ad. Um, and that's what Instagram is a magazine ad and YouTube is a primetime TV spot for, for somebody like the D'Amelios or Mr. Beast or whatnot. So basically TV as a branding <laughs> to drive monetization on YouTube. I mean, it sounds, it sounds backwards to me well, as like a non-media guy, but that's just kind of an amazing the, the, the James, James in a way. show and Jimmy Fallon show are commercials for their YouTube channel. Just full stop. That, that's what those things have become. Is there opportunities for um, for you to use the family platform to um, elevate other content developers? And, and then is there kind of a revenue share? How does that all work? The, the D'Amelio content universe? Is that what we're getting at? Is this the new MCU? It's the DCU? Is that what you're Well, thinking? I'm sure if you get into, I don't, uh, you know, if you're in the house and, you know, you bring someone that's kind of a lesser talent in the house and then it drives their revenue, then I would think that that's got to generate an opportunity for the family to, to monetize um you know, what Charlie and her family can do to lift those other, uh, those other people. So the, 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 the first answer to that is Dixie, Mark and Heidi are proof of that, right? Charlie, sure. Charlie, Charlie. And then she literally turned her camera and said, here's my sister, here's my yep. mom, my dad. And now each of them have psychotic followings, but absolutely. Um, right now, listen, so much, they're doing great. The revenue's great. Their lives are so changed. So, so we do a lot of it purely altruistic reasons. Um, one is they, they are amazing people. And, and if you ask them, you know, they want a D'Amelio hospital one day, they want D'Amelio community clinics. Like they, they do want all those things. They're just genuinely kind, helpful people. So when we have the opportunities to identify TikTokers or, or their friends or up and coming, we absolutely take our spotlight and shine it onto other people. Um, and we'll continue to do that. Dixie does a thing on her TikTok called um, Picked by Dixie, where once a month people submit, you know, people just do TikToks, do the hashtag Picked by Dixie. Once a month, she picks a person, promotes them on her socials, sends them a giant package of lights and a laptop and, and whatnot, like a, a starter kit to help you become a better, you know, influencer. And she does it because she wants people to get the same benefits that she got from this platform. So, right. So, so that's, that feels to me like more of a brand building type of exercise. I'm thinking more of, well, is there like a standard revenue share that that would occur between you know anyone in the family and someone that, that they're kind of I don't know inviting into their TikTok house or whatever it is? Some of the other uh, many people have tried it, right? There was a Team Ten situation. There's you know uh -huh. there's like shots and there's and there's all these creator houses. Um, I've been doing this for 17 years. Um, I've never loved those. I felt that they feel a little taking advantage of people who might be a little more naive. I feel yep. like they never end well. 
I feel like you 100% of the time see an article of this person took 50% of my revenue and did this and made me act like a clown and whatever. And I just have never liked those. So when I first signed the D'Amelios, they were like, should we join a house? Should we do this? And I was like, no, be your own brand, do your own thing. Yep. So, you know, we will do it. I, I, unless we truly started like a straight up management company or a, a, a something like that. But I never want to feel like anyone's going to ever call us up later and say, you took too big of a revenue share or you made me make content I didn't want to make. It's, it's a bad spot to be in. Got it. I also, Rich, sorry, just one more thing kind of on that thread. I also remember reading or listening somewhere about how, you know, if a new song came out that TikTok wanted to elevate, that there was some interaction between TikTok and the talent. They say, hey, Charlie, can you, you know, please do this? Was there, is there revenue generated from that? Or is that just, is that just kind of a kind of a mutual positive relationship that she's still elevated on the platform because she's also at the same time, you know, doing dances that TikTok would like to, that thinks that they're going to, they want to go viral. So music, the music on TikTok are like brand deals. So all the record labels, all the musicians, whatever, every time they're breaking a song, there's a budget set aside to pay TikTokers, you know, anywhere from, you know, hundreds of dollars to tens of thousands or, you know, hundred grand plus to promote the song. 99% um, of the time that happens between um, the record label and talent um, in very rare circumstances, TikTok will get involved because they have some massive campaign going on with a yeah. humongous artist. And they will, as part of the art, the label doing a media buy and doing this and doing that, there'll be some money put aside and, and that happens. It's super rare. Um, but so even if there's not money though, it is TikTok the company ever engaging with, um, the family and saying like, can you put out this type of con? Okay. Now yeah, TikTok is, we're really close to them. We talk to them all the time about the platform and features and tools. They're not coming to us saying, promote this, promote that. Um, Unless it's again this super rare thing where like it's a crazy event and somebody's got something and do you guys want to get to know this you know crazy humongous artist because it'd be cool for both of you they'll sure. they'll they'll make those introductions but not in a not like they're not pushing one person's music over another. Okay, so we're about halfway through. If you have questions, there's a Q and A box. Please use it at the bottom of the Zoom screen. Pose your question. We've already got a few, and we'll try to get through as many questions that are good as we can over the course of the next half hour. The first question that's come in um, is actually from Jonathan saying, what about Snap, please? And I guess, let me put a little context around this. Uh, the first time I, I went for a walk with Evan on the Venice Boardwalk, I remember asking him about creators. This is probably when they had like 20 or 30 employees. And I remember sort of him like sort of like creators, like, you know, I, he literally didn't even like care that creators were on the platform because it was all about sort of personal connections between friends. And it wasn't about, you know, people that you followed or creators. Obviously, a tremendous amount has changed in the last 18 months. And you heard the word creator a lot yesterday at their first kind of big investor event that they held yesterday. Where, I mean, I think you mentioned in, in your comments, like, and Snap, like, is Snap at the bottom? And like, are they growing? Like, how does Snap fit into this conversation? Or does it not really yet? Um, listen, a, a little bit at the bottom, um, for sure. It's still, it's still less a broadcast medium than it is a communication medium. Um, but I guess, you know, according to them yesterday and according to the, the inquiries we're getting and whatnot, more and more of their user base is consuming content. Um, they're consuming the discover content. content. I mean, that those Will Smith numbers yesterday are in, are like bonkers. Totally. And, and, and so obviously then that team who's behind that is reaching out to all the top tier talent, showing those numbers saying, do you want to make a show? So I, I do think it's, um, it's an interesting conversation that's being had. And um, 
right now it's but and then the spotlight thing they're super excited about um where you know they basically have their kind of TikTok style feed and they're giving that million dollars away every day to people for making that content so those seem to be working well for them um so I, i'm hopeful that i love competition i want every one of these platforms to crush it and make insane amounts of revenue it's where, where we live so but the hard part for you right is is it, i mean there is i mean the, the one thing that's obvious right is that time like there's four people i mean yes to walt's question you can build the the d'amelio content universe but right now there's four people um that's all they have like it's just simply bandwidth and so you've got to make decisions on i assume reach versus revenue is something you think about all day every day yes there's definitely people throwing money at us to do crazy things and and uh and it's and and by the way, sometimes the answer is revenue. Sometimes the answer is reach. It's it's truly like there is a matrix that you have to make that decision on. And so, um, you know, and people get creative. Like you can you can definitely set up things to shoot content in a you know in a window of time, and then mentally know, okay, I'm going to make a little bit for this platform, a little for that platform, a little that. And we have to do that because you know they're teenagers and everything you said. They have limited time, so we're trying to get better about that. But it's um you rank them, but listen. People are bullish on Snap. They're 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 obviously with what they did yesterday. Very excited, and so we're rooting for them big time. I'm going to go to another question from the audience, and one I'm actually pretty pretty curious about myself from Nick. In terms of the Hulu show, the Kardashian comparison seems inevitable. Are there any clear differences in content strategy between your show and Keeping Up with the Kardashians? Great question. Um, I don't, I'm not going to say this specifically like one show to the other show because um, I just, you know, probably can't. Um, but I will say on, on a whole, um, we think they're great. We think they've, they've done an amazing thing of how they've, you know, used media, of how they've built brands and products and whatnot off the media. We are absolutely inspired by them and, and look to them to, to do, do how they do it. I think it's obviously common knowledge that, that what they do is stirred a bit more in controversy and, you know, I think there's two things about them. One is controversy and the other one is some level of, of, of an interest and excitement over wealth. Um, and, and I don't think they run away from it. They have great houses and great cars and wear crazy jewelry and, and that's part of their brand. And for whatever reason, when it was the mid 2000s of when they came to prominence, that was what was interesting to consumers. And when Instagram popped and they became the kings of it, that was what's interesting to consumers. I think going back to your I'm not first, seeing gold. I, know, I don't I, see any I, gold. I, was, I see no gold doors behind you. I was waiting. There's no like gold, like... Nope. You're, you're going right back to where I, I was just about to go to the quote in the New Yorker about ordinariness. And, and, that's, the, and that's the appeal. And so my, our pitch when we went out to, the, to, the, you know, to all the people who you know, wanted to buy our show, it was, this is an ordinary family living in extraordinary circumstances. And that's it. And, and you, it doesn't work unless they remain ordinary. And if you spend any time with Dixie and Charlie, you're going to walk away from being like, that could be my 16 and 19 year old kids or my kids' best friends. They are as kind as can be. They're, you know, get nervous about things. They, they, they're, they're really who they are. And so that's what the show is going to show because it is who they are. In that light, how challenging was the small incident that happened in the press a couple of months ago? Uh, in the moment, super challenging. Um, they're just, they, again, they, the other thing I say all the time is when you get to the level of them or Taylor Swift or Bruno Mars or, or these people that the whole world talks about, I'm genuinely a believer that it takes you five years to be able to come to terms with it. So that's the amount of time where you've got equal amount of, you know, whatever money, for lack of a better word, that you feel like, okay, I'm going to be fine no matter what. 
and also scar tissue where you're like, I've had bad things happen to me and I've survived them completely that it goes away. So they're like a year plus into it. Um, and when that happened, it was less than a year. So it was hard. I mean, I, I walked into a room and there was a, you know, 16 year old, you know, curled up, holding a pillow on the bed, hysterically crying, wanting to not do this again, wanting to go back to her old life and delete her account. And, and it was super mean and it was, and the other bullshit thing was so dumb and so unfair. So that's what we do. You know, me and mom and dad sit around and it's our first answer is like, did we do anything wrong? Like, no, like if we did something wrong, we'll be on the phone with crisis PR and lawyers and we'll put a plan together <laughs> and we'll save it. But if you didn't do anything wrong, it will just blow over. And, and it did pretty quickly. Totally did. And, and the other crazy thing is she, um, you know, what I say to people all the time is like, when you have a hundred million followers, by the way, I used, I used to say when you have a hundred million followers and if 2% of them, you know, are mad at you, that's a really low number. But 2 million people is an unbelievable. If you woke up tomorrow and 2 million people hated everything about you, it's so much to take for you, for me, for a 16-year-old. The crazy part is it's not even the followers. It's 2 or 3 million other people who don't even follow you who just wanted to jump on and hate, which is why they don't follow you. So the, the, the magnitude that they live in is so huge that it, it, it's heavy. If you're not inspiring a little follow. I would say if you're not inspiring a little bit of hate, you're probably not that interesting anyway. Well, I, that's my motto in, in doing research every day, I right? Know I know mean, that. <laughs> and I, mean, adults, I say I give I'm, I'm a cliche machine now. It's the Howard Stern stuff. It's, you know, oh, the, yeah. the person that hates every episode is the one who's listened to every single episode. Exactly. <laughs> it's, the, it's the woman that, re, that the recorded of all of Howard Stern's shows to submit them to the FCC. Remember that? Completely. She hates it so much. He was recording them all. Okay. So let's go back to the audience. Uh, Michael Kim's got a question here. So for, for more TikTok influencers, uh, and again, this kind of gets back to what you were saying before about the monetization of YouTube. Um, not to say that YouTube is really productive quality, but do you foresee um, TikTok videos evolving to become more cinematic and professional to tell stories, putting more emphasis on production value and video quality? My, my honest answer is no. Um, I'll, I'll, um, I'm going to give you my hundredth cliche of the thing, um, which is when I, when I first joined UTA, so from my short form video days at Equal and Lonely Girl 15 and stuff, I would describe the world of content like, like a barbell, like that you would curl with your arm. And I would say on one side of that barbell is super premium content, Game of Thrones, The Bachelor, NBA basketball finals. On the other side of the barbell was zero cost, personality driven, in your face content by individuals that you like to watch those are all the value the, all the value in a barbell comes from either side the entire middle is worth nothing so that was in my mind webisodes and our friend you know the, the platform that that recently launched and failed in in, in covid and things that <laughs> if, if you're making if you're, pitching, you're so politically nice i mean correct i mean uh, we can just say, say quibi okay. we can just say quibi we can be I you know four people behind you rich so i'm trying to be i'm not uh, the words will never come out of my mouth um so but you know like like i was at uta and there would be you know i'd get a call from one of my colleagues in the in the tv lit department or the unscripted tv department and it would be i have this amazing client they had this great thing it didn't sell you go sell it to one of your buyers and i'm like nobody it didn't sell because no one wants to buy it like no one wants to watch it like why the hell are you going to make something no one wants to watch so so i think that youtube still to this day is handheld camera, personality driven, you know, it's, it's the world of YouTube is way much more like the, the other thing I think about all the time is like in, in paradigms of the past, right? So TV has all these different formats. They have hour long dramas, 30 minute sitcoms, morning news, you know, whatever YouTube took over 
daytime TV. So all over the world of Oprah, Martha, Rachel Ray, those became female lifestyle YouTubers who teach you about makeup and hair and cooking and design. It yep. took over late night TV. It's got, you know, the Lily Singh initially was a YouTube, you know, a talk show person. David Dobrik is a YouTube talk show person, Phil DeFranco. It took over, you know, a lot of the news stuff of like things that are coming out real time fast through the day. But that all that stuff is unscripted personality driven. YouTube is still not a platform for storytelling. Nobody's doing high level scripted, again, Game of Thrones, Stranger Things on YouTube. So that's YouTube. You forgot Roaring Kitty taking over CNBC. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> so all, all those things take place, right? So I think that, so, I, and, and again, I've been doing this on YouTube since 2006. There's been the dream of when is our, when are we going to have our moment of a great serialized scripted show? It's just, it's never going to happen. Those things belong on Netflix and Hulu and HBO and TNT where I'm sitting watching a 70 inch TV on my couch. Um, so TikTok's the same. If you, if you, the only people who want TikTok to be those things are people who can't sell shows to television. The people who want TikTok to be what it is are young people who make great content, whether it's cooking or fishing or dancing or who knows, uh, comedy. It is what it is. Do you think that at least it should expand in terms of the length of video? Meaning like if you were sitting at TikTok and you were looking, I mean, if I guess if I was sitting at, at TikTok listening to what you just said, and there is no one even close. And, you know, I, Brandon is obsessed with Clubhouse, so he makes me listen to way too many Clubhouses, honestly. And so the other night, he drags me onto a Mr. Beast Clubhouse who's talking about, of course, and he gave the, Greg the same exact answer. One. He was like, if you want to make money, literally leave wherever you are and make sure you're making YouTube videos because it's the only way to really make money. I guess, though, if I'm sitting at TikTok and I'm listening to this, the obvious answer, I think, would be, well, they don't need to be 30 seconds or 15 seconds or a minute. We could also enable Charlie to make 10-minute videos with 30-second spots or 15-second spots and blow out monetization. Like, it doesn't – to Walt, maybe it doesn't have to be cinematic quality, but it could just be longer that has more natural advertising as you were kind of answering Walt's it's, question at the beginning of this. Would you do like that? It feels going to move that way, right, Rich? Or, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll like Greg answer <laughs> no, I, I think i think i think the length of time is 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 uh, not relevant in a good way and therefore you can have longer videos again same thing with youtube when i first started youtube with lonely girl it was like if your video is over two minutes and 20 seconds all these young people have no attention spans and they click off and they do it now youtube videos are 25 minutes long and my 11 year old will watch every single minute of that 25 minutes and then he'll watch the next video right after as long as it is shot and paced and done properly for youtube um, so I think TikTok can do the same thing, but I think people still be making TikToks. They just might be, to your point, they might be an entire music video of three and a half minutes instead of 30 seconds of a Dua Lipa song. As probably the most obsessed TikTok user among the three of us, I'd say I, would, I don't want longer content. So let me, let me go the opposite <laughs> way and say that this format is phenomenal, what they've put together. I mean, part of this, the engine, blah, blah, blah. We know everyone knows the whole the, the deal with this. Let's talk about other platforms. You guys are obviously a major content uh, on this platform how quickly are other platforms whether it's reels or whatever rushing to spotlight. replicate spotlight you know all the different names um to replicate this and who do you think um might get it right and and be a challenge in terms of what tiktok has created tough question listen i mean triller is another one who you know puts a lot of time and effort into having a very similar product um so I think lots are going to try. I think that um, 
I don't know. I mean, my, my, again, going what, what back- kind of questions are they asking you guys about what you'd uh, like to see? Cause presumably you would be the perfect person to ask if I was creating a replicant platform, if that's a word replicant. So listen, when I, when I started my, when I started my job from 2006 to 2012, I was like, we live in a YouTube world, a little bit of Twitter, but really nothing else matters from 2000 from 2012 to 2019, we lived in a YouTube Instagram world. And I got pitched by every single VC and every single entrepreneur who's starting their own tech platform to be like, here's our thing. And this YouTube doesn't do this. We do all these things. And I was like, it doesn't matter. All that matters is where the audience is. And so for those time period, 2006 to 2019 was YouTube and Instagram. Now we are YouTube, Instagram, TikTok. And I believe we're going to be, that's table stakes now, if you're an online content creator to be excellent at those three platforms. That's cool. I, I don't know if, if every so, other- So does that mean you're, this is a, a word that Brandon always talks about, purpose-driven? I mean, do, do, do you think that it has to be, you know, in that particular app, that's the best and anyone that tries to replicate it, why why be a jack of all trades in terms of having different types of stuff that you, there's going to be one winner and everyone else is just, why bother? I think it's possible. I think that the, the only close one that you saw is really when Instagram was inspired by uh, Snap Stories. And, uh, and, and did a great job with that. Um, but that's just because Snap, to Richard's point earlier, just did not do a good job, in my opinion, early days with creators. And so they didn't embrace them and whatnot. And then the stories are really fun from creators, also fun from individuals. I think it was just a miss on their part. But I, I mean, do- I still remember when Kylie tweeted out, what, what was the Snap that she posted? Or I think she tweeted out, I'm done with Snapchat. I mean, she obviously went back and that's a long time ago, but. Oh, for sure. And, and that was, I think, a miss. And, so, and, I, and TikTok is awesome. Like the. The team there that we know is awesome. The product is unbelievable. So I'm like, be great at TikTok and make TikToks. Be great at Instagram and do Instagram, Instagram stories. They're trying with IGTV to kind of, you know, be YouTube or something else. They're obviously trying with Reels. Don't know if those will work. Um, Again, rooting for all of them. And then be great at YouTube. And by the way, YouTube has done the same. YouTube has tried YouTube stories, YouTube community feed. You know, absolutely. They have a, they're sure they're going to have a TikTok clone. I don't think any of the, I don't know if any of them are going to work. I think you can be great at these three platforms for, for what their inherent core is and have a massive business as a creator. You mentioned Triller before, and I know you guys did a deal with Triller. Can I just ask why? And is it, is it just the money? And is that the next kind of quibby? Or do you, you think that platform is going to be something? Um, listen, we like the people there. Um, they, they are, you know, they're, they're media people. One thing, one thing I've noticed in my entire career doing this is these platforms are not media people. It is literally like you're working with a Borg when you talk to them and, and it's fine. It's who they are, but, um, but that's the core of a Google or of a Facebook or, or whatnot. And they, they put less value on the individual creators than they do on their engineers clearly works for them. Fantastic. Um, Triller is a media company and they, they have media people. So just the way they talk to talent and they take care of talent and lean into talent, it, it's, it's, it's endearing. It's, um, it's very positive. And so our whole thing was like, Hey, let's give these guys a shot to go build something because they put a huge emphasis on the value of talented people. They're much more like Disney, right? Disney and, and Netflix and, and Warner brothers, their whole business is built on talent, um, with every engineers, you know, under that. So I was like, cool, let's see if a, a social platform can have that more mindset and see what they do. And it's certainly worth the, worth the ride. 
just want to shift to one other platform that is definitely not trying to compete with TikTok, as far as I can tell, is Twitter. But um, I think Charlie um, and Dixie both did a video explaining that they enjoy Twitter as a way to engage uh, with their fans. So why that platform as opposed to any others that, that they could use to engage with with their fans? It didn't seem like it doesn't seem like the demographic of Twitter is something that that would um, be one where that's where her fans would live. You know, crazy enough, it is. And 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 it's it's one of those, like Gary Vee had a thing maybe a year or two ago, and he like did like a, almost a man on the street and was talking to a lot of teens. And a lot of them mentioned Twitter over and over and over. Um, you know, listen, it's super light touch. Charlie can wake up this morning and just be like, good morning, guys, and get, you know, 37,000, you know, retweets and comments and whatnot. And so it's it's easier for her to do that than it is for, like, it just... It's easy to make an IG story, but still you gotta maybe have a little makeup on or maybe not, or maybe have a pose or maybe not, but you, there's some creativity that goes into that and some judgment that goes into that. So she can do it on Twitter and get a lot of feedback. Um, the Q and A is, a, it's certainly a lot easier. The public Q and A on Twitter is way easier. There's no public Q and A on any of these other platforms. Um, so it's uh, it's something that's Clubhouse. It's lightweight. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see about Clubhouse. I'm, I, I, I'm using it and playing with it there. You know, Mark D'Amelio likes Clubhouse. We'll see if the girls get into it. We're going to have think. to get Charlie to respond to me on Twitter. That's it. That's my goal now for 2021. Hint, no, no person who can make that happen. So. Yeah. Rich um, needs to drive that follower count up. There you go. So, so there's two questions that I sort of tie together, and I think you'll see where it's going. So one of them is it's an anonymous question saying, do you think about building your own platform for distribution so that you don't have to share revenues with third parties? And then the second question from Nigel, um, who um, he has a question saying, uh, OnlyFans, Patreon, Cameo views, like what, what makes sense to put behind a paywall? So, I mean, I think they're both sort of in that idea of like, whether it's a paywall on someone else's site or your own paywall, like how do you think about sort of that fan club business versus being on these essentially free platforms that you know we've been the three of us have all been talking about so on the on the first question on building your own uh, again just from experience and whatnot these things are so hard to build and like I, i'm a i'm a uh, you know low-hanging fruit type person for the most part so me figuring out how to go and hire a ceo and an engineering team and and make us the board of directors to that whole group and keep it financed and grow and, and, and evolve, it, it sounds like my head's going to explode compared to the other opportunities that we have in front of us. So no. Um, now, if some amazing group of people came to us and wanted us to invest early on and do it, and we thought that they were excellent and the product was super cool, like 100% open to those opportunities all the time, but not the, we're going to pull ourselves off and put on something else. All, uh, you know. And Dobrik's new thing is really interesting. Dispo is one of those that like Thumbs up, love Dobrik, rooting for them big time. We'll be supporters of theirs, um, but not the like, I'm sitting right here kind of cooking up our own genius platform. So that's one. On, on the other side, the paywall side, um, those, it, those are so interesting to me. Um, I think they're amazing for, for the masses of the kind of, you know, middle tier and like micro influencers who don't generate enough money on AdSense or brand deals or opportunities. And so that whole pitch of like, if you have a hundred thousand fans and a thousand of them give you 10 bucks a month, that's $10,000 a month. That's a six figure job. Good for you. That's amazing. For us, whenever we ask people for money, like it's a huge moment in time when we are saying to people, you know, buy our ring light products or buy our Hollister sweatshirts. Um, and people get really mad when they think that we have to, when we're selling them content. So when you get to the level we're at, 
Mr. Beast is at, it gets challenging. The reason I push it though, is that like, I've seen, you know, obviously Cardi B sort of made a big push into OnlyFans, but yeah. now we've seen more and more. I mean, I think there's two English football players that have done it, or rugby players. You're starting to see, you're just seeing more and more music talent. I think there's an article today actually in Billboard actually with the, this with Tim, the, the, the founder of OnlyFans. Like it just, it feels like it's becoming sort of like Cameo. Like when we, you know, we, we had Stephen Galinas was on uh, Light Shed Live a few weeks ago. And we sort of talked about how it's sort of become increasingly normalized for bigger and bigger celebrities to be on Cameo. It, it sort of feels like it's becoming more and more normalized Patreon, only fans. I mean, it just, it feels like there's more and more of a push where we're seeing more of that from people that are bigger than just the mid tier, I guess is what I'm getting at. Uh, yes. But I think about this stuff really specifically, which is um, the type of talent, right? So if you're a music talent that you it, I, like a con, they have a contract with their audience, right? A contract is, you know, what you expect to give and to receive. And so with music talent inherent in their core is people are paying for their content. You're paying for their music, you're paying for their tours, you're paying for their merchandise. So then when you go online and you start asking people to pay for stuff, you already have that you know mutual understanding of how it works. Um, movie stars, soccer players, these other people, they live in that kind of world where the, the audience is used to paying to some capacity. You gotta you got subscribe to Sky Sports if you wanna go watch all the English Premier League soccer, right? Or you gotta buy their jerseys to go to their tickets. So I think it's a lot easier for those people to come onto these platforms and ask fans for money. Influencers are different. Influencers started from day one of this relationship with them of I'm going to give you all this free content on all these platforms telling you all about my life that once you start gating that you get a lot of negative feedback. So that's my only way that I look at it of all celebrities are not created equally. There's a different expectation from their fans. And, and, and here's what I'd say. I think that's a, 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 a thing that works in a, like when, when I going back to our Quibi situation. When streaming platforms, I, I've been saying this for 15 years, which is the, in my opinion, the only way content streaming platforms for the most part have ever worked successfully are when they started with movies. HBO was a paid for thing that gave you movies. Netflix gave you movies because why people are used to paying for movies. And so when you I wanted to do with all these other platforms, people are not used to paying for social media effectively. Totally. Well. So, so the vessels and the quibbies and the these other ones that popped up to do this thing, they, they fuck with the minds of the consumers. And the people are like, wait, I don't understand why I'm paying for this, but I was always down to pay, you know, 12, 15 bucks for a movie, which is why those streaming movie platforms work. And then once you get the audience, then you could go give them TV shows and other things, whatever, but you got to lead with things that people are already used to. We have one audience question, I believe that's unanswered now. So I'm gonna ask it from Peter. It's on the subject of Entourage, going back to when we were discussing that at the very beginning. I feel like I wanna rewatch that now. That's gonna go on my list. Now you got me. Oh, Entourage is the greatest. Yeah. I'm making the families watching it. Especially when Bob Saget gets involved. It was much better than, what was that other one? Arliss? That was bad. <laughs> that's old Arliss. I mean, that, that's like OG HBO though. Funny but cheesy. Yes. All right, go Brandon. How do creators and their teams look at building brands from the ground up with visible or invisible partners? Use Entourage and Avion as the TV example, or how Charlie and Step decided to do a partnership. Very organic. Has to be part of a creator's life, but there are so many options. I guess that's sort of a commentary and a question. Go ahead. 
listen, the number one best way is if it's genuinely the person loves it, right? So, um, I mean, if you, everyone, anyone wants to go after this call, after the Zoom and go to Dunkin' Donuts right now, you can order the Charlie. I mean, it's actually the Charlie, Charlie 2.0. Um, this one has cold foam instead of whole milk. Um, and why did that happen? Because since Charlie was 12 years old, she's been drinking Dunkin' Donuts. And when her entire tick, her literally her fans on TikTok are their name Chunkins, like Charlie plus Dunkin'. So of course that thing makes sense. <laughs> Step, we met the CEO of Step. He walked Charlie, got on Zoom with Charlie, and he was like, Tell me what your life was like when you were 14 years old and you did babysitting and your mom and dad gave you 30 bucks. Like, how did that work? And she walked through all the pain points and things. And he was like, Well, what if I create, I have this thing I built, and what if it worked this way? He's like, Oh my God, I would love to use that. Can you send me a card? Amazing opportunity, right? So, it's got to, it's, people can smell bullshit. It's got to come from a real place. Um, so, that's the thing. But the big thing I would caution to many creators out there is it's so hard and you have to sell such a huge volume of stuff and you have to sell it so consistently that like all these merch things, again, my entire, like I had three years where like every new meeting was, I want to do merch, I want to do merch. And I'm like, if you're not selling $50,000 a month of merch, you have no business. Like from the time the cuts of the cost of goods and the profit sharing and whatnot, and the amount of time it takes you each time to do a merch drop of 50 meetings and designs and whatnot, like, and, and how many people out there month over month over month can sell $50,000 worth of hoodies and t-shirts and sweats, like very little. So how many Charlies are selling? A lot. Well, Charlie, Charlie sells a lot, but, but Charlie's, listen, I, I, it's so funny. I used to have the rule at UTA, which is like, if you come in my office and you say to me, Hey, Kim Kardashian did this, I want to do this. I'm like, get out of my (laughs) office. That is a unicorn. There's one Kim Kardashian in the world. Don't don't give me that example. There's one Charlie and D'Amelio family in the world. So people should not look at what we do and try to emulate it unless they have 108 million followers on a platform. So we're in that level. It's very lucky. It's very fortunate. There's a lot of opportunities for them, but I get very nervous for people when they try to chase all these things that other ones are doing. And then they launch a merch business, they launch a jewelry company, they launch a nail polish company, they sell $850 worth of nail polish that they've been working on for three months where they could have focused their efforts elsewhere. I think I have to ask this question because just just because it's impacted all of our lives so much, but you know, coming hopefully coming out of COVID, uh, how do you think things change in terms of do you expect lower usage? Does it do you think about events that you might want to do that um, you might have been restricted to doing in the last year or so? But just any thoughts on on how COVID changes um, kind of what you're looking at going forward? Um, I think on the I think on the, the I don't think there's negatives in usage. I think people are so absolutely hooked to their phones to such an unhealthy, insane level that they were they're not going anywhere from those. Um, so I think that that's fine on that part of the business. Um, I'm as ecstatic as any other human being living on planet Earth to be able to go to concerts and to festivals and to indoor restaurants if you're an LA person. Um, and, and I think that plays a huge part in our business. I think we have an enormous opportunity to do, you know, whether it's just simple meet and greet stuff that just does more brand building and, and builds, you know, fan bases and all that kind of like the, the shitty thing for the Demilius is they it is fun to be able to go to an event and have 3000 people screaming for you and, and wanting to get your autograph. It becomes a little intimidating later on, but it's fun. They didn't get to do any of that. Um, their life has been ma- mainly COVID. Um, and then I think there's, you know, Dixie's an incredible singer. She's got a great, you know, recording artist kind of career going. So. So have you started to plan for that? Cause it feels like numbers are down. People are getting their vax. Yeah. The, the calls rolling in from the concert promoters, from the, the bookers, from, you know, all that kind of stuff is, is the volume is skyrocketing. So, you know, cool. and, and 
and the ad, the appetite's clear. They're like, they, they put all these figures on the weekend, you know, the weekend launched his 2022 tour, you know, almost sold out the entire thing, millions and millions of dollars of tickets sold. So I think any, any, not any fear out there of like, oh, consumers aren't coming back and there is bullshit. People will It'll go. it be a good time to be a ticket broker. I, if there are any left. I, so the ones that survive <laughs> like in all these moments in time are going to do really well. So we haven't talked about podcasting. We've got a few minutes left. Um, you know, we actually did a clubhouse the other night uh, and actually JD Crowley from Entercom actually joined us on that. I know that um, Charlie and Dixie have been doing a podcast, I guess, in a joint venture with UTA and Entercom, but we just love your thoughts on sort of the podcast medium. Obviously, Spotify had their big stream on event this week, sort of like what is the what's your view on like where we are in podcasting, how important um, to you and the family and like is it meaningful revenue wise yet or is it like you look at it as it's going to be meaningful? So I love podcasting, love it as a fan, love it as a, you know, executive in the entertainment industry. I think it's again, another one of these super low cost, potentially incredibly high profit businesses. Um, you know, not if, profitable, not meaningfully profitable yet though, I guess is the key. I mean, depends on who you are. Not if you're, not if you're Guy Raz or Joe Rogan or my favorite murder, you're yeah, buying. If you, if you go sign an exclusive deal with Spotify. You don't even have to do that, but like you guys, I'm crime junkie and my favorite murder and Ben Shapiro and all these guys. I go if you look look on the top hundred Apple charts, the, the top forty of these people are buying ten million dollar houses in the Hollywood Hills. Like it is a unbelievable business. Because um, again, your cost of your, your cost is zero. Um, your cost is a microphone. And I, I had a friend when I was back in the day who worked. It was a very senior guy at Kraft Foods, and we talked about TV commercials and Super Bowl ads. And he's like, Greg, he's like, if I can go get a person to write chalk on the sidewalk and sell the same amount of Philly cream cheese, I'm doing chalk on the sidewalk. Like the advertisers just want to sell products. And there is a whole lot of data around audio advertising and remembering it, being impacted by it, being affected by it. It's a really, really great form of advertising. So I'm super bullish on podcasts. I think the scripted ones are awesome. I think the informational unscripted ones are awesome. So for us, it's very important. Mark and Heidi just launched one yesterday. Um, yep. It's still our revenue is for the podcast are not going to be my favorite murder or, you know, Joe Rogan yet, um, primarily because our audience is young. And so a person who's 13 years old right now might get into podcasts when they're 16 or 17. But hopefully at that point in time, we're there, we're good at it, we're established. Um, but it is an amazing both brand building thing for us. But, to the- but we were talking on, on the clubhouse, we were talking about, sorry, well, but we were talking about sort of like the talking dead. Like, so when you launch the show on Hulu, should there be sort of a, whether it's a podcast or a live audio, but like, should there be companion programming that you leverage through, through the audio medium? You want to host it? You're good at this. <laughs> you a, let, me, let me have my agents at UCA reach out well, to you. I guess it depends on what the, what the price is, but I mean, I guess we're, you know, we're business people and entrepreneurs first. Why did you pick, why did you pick, <laughs> why did you pick Entercom as, as the partner? Like how did they surface as the right partner for the, for the family? So there's, uh, there's a company called Cadence 13. I guess they're owned by Entercom. I'm yep. not even sure on the dynamics. Yep. And then with, within them, there's a kind of almost like think of them as a record label and there's a sub label called Ramble and Ramble. We just like them. They, they understand content of what we need to make. They understand marketing. Their ad sales team is really good. They made us a nice offer, like all, all the kind of same normal stuff. Um, they, they're good at what they do for our market. The one thing I will tell you about the podcast is if you go ever hang out with Dixie and Charlie and you say to them like, what happens on these moments where you post a piece of content or, or the Daily Mail starts talking shit about you guys for, you know, your nails look like they're broken in a picture and it makes you sad for an afternoon. 
how do you deal with that? One of their major answers is our podcast. We get to sit in a quiet room with the two of us, phones away, have an hour and just kind of, you know, talk about things that are bugging us. So if it's nothing more than a therapy session for the two of them, it's a huge, huge value. It's sort of like our weekly podcast. It's very cathartic to talk about. Sort yeah, of I didn't even week. think about how you, I've always thought about podcasts as being something that's very uh, intimate with your listeners, but you're right. And the same thing, you're focused on having just a one hour discussion with other humans. And it's obviously, you know, it, that can be really totally. good. And, and that's what, that's what I think generates genuine content for the listener. Right. So, so to our point, Mark and Heidi started one and, you know, it was a lot of us telling them like them being like, who's going to listen or whatever. And it's like, just go do it again. It costs nothing. It's super easy to do. And they both came home and they were like, oh my God, that was the first time in the last two or three months of chaos that the two of us phones away, quiet room, just got to talk to each other and got to ask each other how we're doing, how we're feeling. And it was awesome. They, they're loving it. Bring us home, Brandon. Bring us home. Try not to laugh as you say it, but like, go ahead. It's a reasonable question. The very last um, (laughs) question in the Q&A, sign of the times, with such a big following and various revenue streams and the market's very frothy, why not do a SPAC to accelerate their march to Kardashian-like business ownership? I've had three inquiries. I've had my, my phone. If you, if you actually, if you, that doesn't surprise me. If you search NFT and SPAC in my, <laughs> you would, you're, it's very significant. Um, I don't know. If, listen, if, maybe, maybe we should have a clubhouse discussion and discuss both NFTs and SPACs and how the Demilios fit into that. Could benefit, and then we could have people come up and pitch ideas. That would be a great. That would be a great and title and for a clubhouse, which is like <laughs> the Demilio's <laughs> Spacs, NFTs, and Doge Coin. Listeners, <laughs> and I think that it's. Uh, I don't know. Like, here's what I'll tell you: crazy rocket ship emoji, rocket ship rocket dynamite emoji, emoji yeah. rainbow bear. Done. I, 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 if, if I, if you told me whatever a year ago that I'd be sitting in this chair right now in this house with this job talking to you guys, I would not have believed you. So. I, so I when do we get to watch when do we get to watch the Demilios? or you when do we get to watch you when do we get to watch greg we don't have a firm start date yet i'd say it's middle of this year got it um um it's been great having you on light shed live thank you for making the time we're super excited about sort of the explosion of the creator economy and sort of where you fit in and, and wish you the best is i mean i know you're only a few months in but we're really excited to see where you take this over the next few years and hopefully we can have you back as there's even more to talk about after you're now a, a tv star thank you all for having me super fun and, and i'd love to come back so talk, talk to soon you all. Yeah. Bye.